So we're in a series called It Is Written. And uh, last week we looked at a statement of Jesus when he was facing off with the devil. He appealed to the scriptures and the Bible's authority, not his own name, not his own authority, even though he could have. He said, it is written. And so uh, the Bible tells us in Psalms that God has exalted or elevated his word even above his name. And so the, the word of God's really important to God. In fact, God said to Joshua, uh, he encouraged him, you need to meditate in this book of the law, in this word of God, in Joshua's version of the scriptures of his day. And he told him, when you do that, then you will make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. So when we're doing a series like this, as a pastoral team, this is our heart for you. Our desire, we, listen, when we get pastoral counseling situations, people are needing our help. Not 90% of the time, not 99% of the time, 100% of the time, it's because at some level or another, we are not living according to the Word of God. And the Bible promises that when we do, it may take time, just like planting a seed and seeing a tree grow, but when we do, then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have good success, or God's a liar. I'm not going with that one. In other words, I think that it's not that the Word of God's been tested and found wanting. I think it's not been actually tested thoroughly enough yet. And I think we, it's, it's on us, the people of God, who are in covenant with God, to take him at his word and to try this. But the problem is so many don't know it. So this, it is written as a desire to call you at this beginning of the year while we're fasting. Some of you are denying yourself food. Feed your spirit the word of God. Feed yourself on the word of God. Well, I'm not denying myself food. Still feed yourself on the word of God. That doesn't change my mind at all. And so I want to invite you to do that. And Last week, we looked at this passage where Paul's instructions to Timothy, where he told him, he said, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God moved upon some people to write these things, but it was God as the author. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. And so if the Bible is helpful to make us thoroughly equipped for a life of serving God, following God, this, this blessed life that I'm talking about, that the Bible's talking about, uh, it's incumbent upon us to study it. We need to study it. If, it, if, if the scriptures uh, are profitable for life, we need to study it. Now, I'm not going to ask by a show of hands how many of you actually do that. I'm not even going to ask by a show of hands how many of you actually read the Bible as a regular part of your life, because I know Statistically speaking, most of you don't. And it's, it's, and it's my encouragement, my job as a pastor, as one who cares for your life and cares for this congregation, that I draw you to the source of life. So we're going to look at how to study the Bible today. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever bought something? Actually, let me ask, have you ever bought a lawnmower? Something like that, right? Can you pull it out and you get this little document in there and it's, your little quick start guide or whatever, little user manual, right? You open the page and the front page, and then it's got this diagram of the lawnmower, and it's got the little wheels and little screws, and out here, a little plastic thing, and it shows a little arrow pushing it all in. And, and when I see that, I don't know what you think when I see that, but when I see that, that's a sign that boredom is about to commence. Anybody else? <laughs> like, and so what do we do? We end up trying to put it together ourselves. And, and you can do that with a lawnmower. It's fairly easy. Just snap those things on, pop up the handle, you know. If it works like every other lawnmower, we're good. But how many of you ever bought something from Ikea? 
All right, I bought a piece of, I bought this uh, kind of trundly looking bed thing from Ikea that, for my daughter. It's, a, it's actually a bed. It's like a combo bed and trundle, but it's got like a million bars. Not a million, I'm just kidding. But it's probably got like 50. And it's got these little bitty bars and they, then it's got these intersecting bars and it goes through the side of this metal plate. It's got holes for every one of those bars. And they don't have written instructions. It's all pictures. And I'm looking at this thing, trying to put this together. I want to tell you, it would have been impossible. I'm not saying hard. It would have been impossible for me to put that together without those, without those instructions. And uh, it's one of the things that we can't do on our own. So like with a lawnmower, you might figure it out over time and you might get it to work. But then there are other things that we can't figure out over time. We need some help understanding it. I want to suggest you the Bible is one of those things. I find that people are trying to assemble their faith, their understanding of the scriptures, just kind of wing it and figure it out. And we can come to all kinds of of bad conclusions of that. I was one of those guys when I was young in the Lord. In fact, I hated to approach the Bible. And some of you feel that way yourself. And uh, when I was 14 years old, I, uh, I was in a mechanical shop class and I had to learn how to take a a lawnmower apart and put it back together. And of course, the purpose of that was to, to learn how the, you know, the functioning of a, of a gasoline engine works and how each part relates to the other part. And uh, I believe the, the goal, yeah, that was the goal. Well, in 2 Timothy 2.15, the Bible tells, the Paul tells Timothy this, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, so there's a way we can approach the scriptures where we wrongly divide it, wrongly study it, and there's a way we can rightly do it. And I believe just like taking that lawnmower engine apart and putting it back together, this kind of study of learning to rightly divide the word of truth and put it back together is the equivalent of putting the engine together, understanding how it all works. And those, this series has been about that for us. And so last week we looked at just how to build your faith on this idea that the Bible is both reliable and supernatural, and it works effectively in those who believe. And I'm, I'm not going to repeat last week's message, but if you have any doubts that the scriptures are the word of God, please listen to the first week message. It will, it will help you so much. That's available online if you choose to do that. Now, if we learn how, how if we uh, can understand how it's put together, how it's assembled, just like an engine, we can learn how to use it properly when we study it and apply it to our lives. And so we're going to learn how to do that. And so, uh, before we begin to study the Bible, before I teach you how to do that, we need to understand how it's put together. So there's, there's, there's kind of an approach here. First of all, how was the Bible assembled? And then how do I actually study it in the way it's assembled? And I think one of the greatest disservices to those trying to read the Scriptures is to tell them the Bible is easy to read. Just pick it up and read it. It's like any other book. No, no, no it's not. And... Um, and people would tell me that when I was a young Christian, and I would go to do that, and I was confused. I was so confused about so many things. Sometimes I was confused about just, why is he saying this? Or, ooh, that's gross. Sometimes I didn't understand expressions they were using or words they used. And so today I want to help you navigate what was difficult for me. So the first thing you need to do to rightly divide the word of truth is, is you need to know three things. You need to understand its contents, its covenants, and its translations. Let's start by looking at its contents. You need to understand its contents. The Bible contains 66 books or scrolls. It was written by about 40 men over a period of about 1,600 years, but it was covering a period of about 4,000 years of history. 
All right? Now, it had multiple writers, but it only has one author. And that one author is God who moved upon these men by the Holy Spirit. Again, last week I showed how the Bible hasn't changed throughout history. It was comprised of three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It was divided into chapters in 1228 A.D., So the verse markers came along in 1488 for the Old Testament and the New Testament verses in 1551. Probably all boring to you, but here's why that's important. When you open your Bible and you see those little chapter markers and all that stuff, those didn't exist when when it was written. It wasn't like the author wrote chapter 15, verse 1. He didn't do that. That came later so that we could all together be able to study together when they wanted people to be able to know where to go as, as people became more literate, because again, literacy is like a relatively later invention in the history of the earth where most of the earth is literate, you follow me? So, so that came later. So they began to add these, later they began to add these chapter markers and these verse markers. So I could say, go to John chapter one, verse two, and you could go there. And that was designed. And that becomes really important because you can't read it normally like an author book or chapters. And the chapters and verses can cause you to create breaks. They're just a reference marker. They shouldn't be a break in your mind. Sometimes there's an idea that's continuing right into the next chapter. Does that make sense? So if I read, if I was, if you were a Jewish person in Jesus' day, when they picked up the scroll in the temple to read uh, from Isaiah, they would have to find that place in the scroll they wanted to go. They literally had these little handy little, like they had their version of technology to roll those scrolls. It wasn't like paper. You had these little wood handle things that you could adjust where the scroll's at. And they would find, say, Isaiah 61, and Jesus stood up. We know he stood up in the temple, and he read that. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4, you know how you can go read that? Because I told you where the chapter is. Anyway, so you open that up, and see, I told you his message is relevant. So anyway, you open it up, and you begin to, he would read there. He would say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. If you got a scroll of Isaiah, there would be no chapter markers. If you read the, I got a letter from Paul to Timothy, you'd be reading the whole letter just like you would any letter. I mean, how many of you get a letter and you like read it in pieces? And honestly, if you send me chapters in your letter and verses, I am concerned about how long that letter is. So you follow me. That's the first thing. The second thing is you need to uh, understand its covenants. The Bible was not written in chronological order. The Bible was assembled, it assembled its letters as it were by types. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, and by the way, covenants, there, there was an old covenant. We call the old covenant and the new covenant those covenants because the old covenant was the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses. And it was a covenant of performance. And we're going to look at that in a couple weeks. So I'm not going to put a lot of time and energy on that right now. And then we had the new covenant that was made through Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. That is the current covenant that's in force for those who believe. The old covenant was for the Jewish people exclusively. The new covenant is for the whole world and those who believe in Jesus Christ. And so there were letters and, and, and letters, and well, I mean, just, there was history, poetry, wisdom, and prophecy in the Old Covenant. So like your first five books of the Bible, that's called the law. And then you move into the history books as you begin to move from Joshua. And, and then you have poetry and, and the, in the form of Job and uh, uh, Psalms and Proverbs and the Song of Solomon. And then you have the prophets. And you'll sometimes hear the prophets referred to as the major prophets and the minor prophets. It wasn't because they were, the major prophets were superior to the minor prophets. It has to do with the length of the books. And the major prophets are major long, and the minor prophets are, some of them are one, you know, one or two pages, so relatively short. But here, here's why this is important, and you understanding this when it comes to your study. Where you're at in the Bible will determine how you interpret it. 
So if I'm in the history books, I need to take it mostly literally. And there's people who will go to, say, the book of Genesis, and they'll look at the creation of man and how God created the earth in six days, and on the seventh he rested. That couldn't have possibly happened because I can't figure it out as a man. Listen, let me help you with something. If he's actually God, let me finish this phrase for you, almighty, almighty indicates he's not having a problem with that. Not some mighty, he's God some mighty. No, he's God almighty. So, so I read, because Jesus and the apostles, we looked at last week, treated those books of the Bible as history, we should too. That means the events that are there should be understood that way. And if you study, if you look at history, history is beginning to continue to uncover those realities. And that was in fact history. And uh, whether we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, uh, like Babel, those kind of places, hunting for Noah's Ark, those kind of things, I, I take it as history. When you move into though things like uh, poetry, the Psalms, for example, the Psalms were songs. I don't know if you know that. So the Psalms were songs. And, and uh, if I read that, I don't want to read things like David having a bad day. Uh, King Saul is chunking spears at him. So David goes and writes a song, you know, may my enemies be crushed before you. Whatever David was singing, he's just having a bad day. He's talking to God. And it's like the way we write music today. People say a lot of things in songs that you would not actually do in real life. It's meant to express the heart. And so you need to approach the Psalms from that angle. I'm not looking for great theology in the Psalms. I'm looking how humans related to God in their worship when they were suffering or when they were having a great day, how they praise the Lord. Are you following me? So what part of the Bible determines that? When I go to the New Testament, we have the Gospels where we learn the Gospels, the first four books of the Bible are telling the story about Jesus. You'll notice they're slightly different. I don't know if you know this, but if you talk to a detective who's trying to, I saw this on Netflix on brain games. I'm not making this up. It went, uh, if you talk to a detective and they're going to get a story about what happened in, a, in an event, a crime scene, whatever, if everybody's story matches up too tightly, they're a lot more nervous about that because humans don't do that. They know that. Human, an eyewitness account will always have the angle of the person who was there. Depending upon where you were standing when you saw Jesus do a miracle, depending upon where you were standing when he kicked out a demon or what he said, you might have heard it a little differently. You might have seen something a little differently. But what we do see is a consistency in the story. Are you following me? Yeah. So it's really important that people say, well, it doesn't match perfectly, therefore it can't be true. Actually, because it doesn't match perfectly would make a detective much more confident that in fact it is true. And you have, the, you have Acts, which is the history of the church. And then you have the letters that uh, the Apostle Paul and uh, Peter and Jude and some of the others begin to write to the church to help give them understanding and to help them grow in God. And then the Bible finishes with the book of Revelation as it begins to help us understand the things that have already happened, kind of supernaturally, what's happened historically, and what's going to happen in the end. That's how the Bible's divided. And so, again, what part of the Bible you're reading in determines how you study it. Finally, you need to understand its translations. Um, translations, when I say translations, I'm talking about things like the King James Version of the Bible. How many of you know that's the most accurate version? It's not. If you're there, I'm about to bust your bubble here in about a few minutes. Um, uh, New King James Version, NIV, the New Living Translation, the CEV, the ESV, the three-letter version of everything, the Message Bible, and then finally you have the Amplified Bible. How do you amplify the Bible? But anyway, they have it. And, uh, and so why are there so many translations? Um, 
And, and, and I want to say this because I study from several, and I, I find them all helpful, but I think it's really important because when I was a young believer, I was encouraged to believe that there's, there's one best version. Let me say this about when, I, when we go to our website and you see us say things like, we believe the Bible is, is authoritative, it's inspired, it's accurate, it's not having changes. I'm not referring to the English language. I'm referring to the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic, that's what I'm referring to, and that's what every, any kind of theologian or someone who's saying that, that's what they're saying. We don't believe it's accurate. We recognize that going, if I say something in English and it gets interpreted in Spanish, my interpreter might mess something up. That doesn't mean I can't go back to the original and find out what was actually being said. But I don't want to encourage you, by and large, because I've studied this stuff back and forth, Greek to English or Hebrew to English, and there's all kinds of powerful tools that you can have on your computer that will help you do that. You don't have to be a anymore have to be a, a Hebrew or Greek scholar to do this. But when I check it, I just want to encourage you that your English Bibles are, are accurate. Yeah. So relax. Like, what if it's not accurate? It is. Yeah. It's just the way they capture the nuance of a word or something like that. So, yeah. so there's two kinds of, 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 there's the way the Bible is translated. If you saw it on a scale, it used to be that you could walk into a Christian bookstore. These days, those are going the way of the dinosaur. But you used to be able to go into, the, into a Christian bookstore and if you're over by the Bibles, they would have this kind of a, a poster on the wall, and it would have a, a spectrum of all the different Bibles and where they fall from most literal to paraphrased. That is a terrible, I, I hate the idea of literal and paraphrased because it it's not really what's happening. So I want to tell you the truth and nothing about the truth, so help me God. Bibles are, are, given, are, are translated in closer to what they call formal equivalents and then dynamic equivalents. Formal equivalents just means they're trying to get as literal as possible. There is no English Bible that's literal. If you want one that's close, go open the Greek and interlinear New Testament. Read it. You'll see the Greek words written above. You won't know what they say. It'll be Greek to you. <laughs> that was good. Anyway, so, so you'll open it up, and it'll be Greek to you. And then underneath, you'll have words that are coming along. And it's just like, you'll see like three Greek words, and then one English word. Another Greek word, another English word. Three more Greek, Greek words, and another English word. And it, it might be like... Uh, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And if you were looking, that, if that's the English part, and if you saw it in Greek, you'd see it, and then translated in English, it might be Spirit, Lord, Him, upon, like something like that. You can't read it. That's why you have to have somebody translate it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, and I'm not trying to bore you to tears. We're about to get to studying the Bible. I just want to set the framework for this. So, uh, so there's formal equivalence, so they're trying to get that right. So, and here's what else you need to know. In the original language, in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, up until, the, I don't know if you know this, punctuation was an invention A.D. There was no punctuation. I have no idea how these people read letters to each other uh, and stuff like that because we grew up depending on punctuation. But there was no punctuation, which means, and this gets tricky when you're translating from Greek to English, but when I get into the debatable things, I'll bring this back up because uh, there, there are whole passages of Scripture that if you change the punctuation, it literally changes the entire meaning of the sentence. And so, uh, again, it's not that the Greek's wrong. It's just sometimes as we approach it, uh, we can mess that up. But So then there was a, there's another type of translation. That's formal equivalence. is dynamic equivalence. Instead of trying to go word for word, you're saying, what, you're saying what it means versus what it said. In other words, they're doing some of the interpretation for you. So when I was a young man, I thought that was like compromise. Oh, I'm not going to read one of them compromised Bibles. I can't read the King James because it's almost in tongues. So I'm going to buy me the new King James because that's tongues interpreted for me, you know, but it's at least close. 
then later I found out the New American Standard was pretty cool. And then later, you know, and on and on it would go. And uh, I finally had to tap out about, uh, like, I don't know, uh, two decades into my Christian journey and realized the NIV is probably not actually a bad version of the Bible. Whew, that was hard to say out loud, Lord. Anyway. <laughs> so why dynamic equivalence? Why dynamic? Why, why that translation? Well, here's why. The con- they, can, they help you understand the context and these things called idioms. You know what idioms are? It's slang, essentially, the way we communicate. So like, like we have it all in our English language. So I'll do a bunch of those. Like, uh, but I'll share what the Bible did. So like with uh, when Job, Job talks about God saving him or him being spared or him hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Now, thankfully, that idiom is carried over to our culture, so we know what it means. But could you imagine... If you didn't know what that meant, or the first time somebody a thousand years from then who didn't use that anymore. And by the way, I want to say this. Job is the oldest book in the Bible, not Genesis. Job is, but they, again, they order it according to making it a little more comprehensible. So if Job is using slang at the beginning of creation, that stuff's all right. It's all throughout the Bible, right? Things like the four corners of the earth, but there are no four corners of the earth. We understand that. That's an expression. And people who want to denounce the Bible will go, see, we know there's no corners of the earth. These dumb people thought the earth was flat, so I'm not going to believe the Bible. And I'm like, no, no, no. The only dumb person here is not to understand that's an idiom right there. Not a, has nothing to do with corners at all. Yeah. It was talking about the far reaches or some other place. Skin of your teeth means I barely made it, right? Yeah. So that's what he's saying. And the reason that's important is I want you to imagine I wrote a letter about LifeWay's church plant. It's 2015. I'm writing to my friend Luke Weaver. Who's, uh, who's whatever, training at, at, at Youth with the Mission in Florida. And I write to him and I say, Dear Luke, it's been incumbent upon me to write to you this important letter about the things that have taken place. You know, and, I, and I might say, we began to pray. We begin to ask the Lord our God about uh, planting a church in this uh, most auspicious place, Lebanon County. And as we were uh, looking at planting a church in Lebanon County, uh, one day I was driving around and I was looking for a place and it was so hard as I was praying because it was raining cats and dogs. And then when I found the place and the Regal Cinemas was quite willing to have us come start our church there, but they wanted to charge us an arm and a leg for every facility. <laughs> Do you understand suddenly why you need someone to translate this for you? Because if it's 2,000 years from now and they're not using arm and a leg, cats and dogs, planting, like, like, okay, so I'm an interpreter. Did he actually go and stick something in the ground to make it grow up? Or does he mean he established it? When he says it's raining cats and dogs, that sounds like the judgment of God Almighty himself. <laughs> or is he saying, or is he saying it was raining heavy? Now, you follow me in honor and it charged me an arm and a leg. Wow, what a sacrifice for the kingdom of God. <laughs> Luke, we're going to get this done come hell or high water. Oh, my gosh, it's the end of the world. Armageddon has happened. No, I'm saying no matter what, I'm going to do this. Are you following me? So, so I, I'm a real fan of having multiple Bibles. So let's, having, having that understanding, when you approach the Scriptures, you can, begin, you can begin to study. Because now you understand some of these basic things that make it help you. When I was, when I was a young believer and I go to Psalms, I took that as... I took that as literal as I would take Genesis as I would take Jesus' words. 
Speaking of Jesus' words, I mean, you need to know that when he's telling a parable and he says, if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off, please don't do that. All right? He's using an expression of intensity. He does not want you to chop your hand off, and he does not want you to gouge your eyeball out. He does not want you to hate your mother or father or your child or your whatever. He wants you to love God more by comparison. Are you following me? This is why it's important to understand some of these basic things. So how to study the Bible. I'm going to give you eight things that I believe will help you study your Bible. Um, and again, not wanting to bore you, wanting to empower you to do this. But when you do this, the real goal of this is not that you get a great head knowledge of God. The real goal of this is that you would encounter Jesus Christ in the scriptures. I want you to meet God here. In fact, well, I want you to meet God here. We'll, we'll get there. How to study the Bible. The first thing that will help you. First, prepare your study tools. Uh, the first thing you need is a Bible. I would say multiple translations. In fact, uh, on your smart devices, for those who have those, there's, a, there's the Bible app. You can get every kind of translation of the Bible known to man almost. I think the Passion translation is not there yet because of their rights over that thing. But outside of that, I think you can get most everything. Oh, it's there now too? Look at these guys calling around. They love the Passion. You guys are passionate about the Passion translation, aren't you? So, but, but like the, there, there's so many there. And then you can go online if you want to do like, like uh, I think the Blue Letter Bible and some of those have Greek and Hebrew study tools for free that you can use if you want to uh, dive deeper. You don't need all that necessarily, but you, uh, at least a Bible. I was with the New King James, so I needed a dictionary for words I don't understand. Listen, don't be ashamed that you don't know words. Don't let your mind, not, don't let yourself not learn something because you did. That was a big change for me when I got a dictionary out and just would like propitiation. What in God's name does that mean? Sanctification. Oh yeah, look at that one up too. You follow me? And so you just, you, you dictionary. Then you get a notepad to journal your thoughts as your study. Some of the reason I know the Bible uh, as well as I do is because I would take scriptures and write them down and then I would write the thoughts as I studied what I was studying. It's gonna take, it's gonna up your experience with God significantly. And uh, I, I want to say I recognize this. When I say study, you know, again, be a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're going to have to study to do that. And that sounds like work. In fact, Paul called that person a worker, right? Some of you said, man, I go to Bedside Baptist Church. I don't want to get up and work. So, so uh, first, prepare your study tools. Second, you need to acknowledge its value. In John chapter 3, verse 27, the uh, Apostle John, I mean, I'm sorry, the prophet John the Baptist said uh, about revelation. He said, no man can receive anything unless it's been given to him from above. There, there, we need God to give us understanding of the thing that we're reading. I told you last week that the Bible is reliable, that it's supernatural, and it works effectively in those who believe. If you don't believe that, you're not going to study. And frankly, I don't blame you. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't either. But I've seen the transforming power of just internalizing the Word of God in my life and what it's done for my life. So the third thing we need is we need to understand our need. And, and, and this is really important. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus said this. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, the food or the sustenance that we need, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know what's required to believe that? This really important character quality called humility. 
Humility says I need something outside of myself to help myself. And if you don't have humility, all you got to do is fast and keep fasting. Don't eat. Don't drink water. At some point, you're going to die. And you're suddenly going to be aware that there are things that you need outside yourself to sustain yourself. The same is true spiritually. I know a lot of people who said yes to Jesus Christ, and they stay stuck in a stronghold and something in their life simply because they don't spend time in the Word of God. And God told Joshua, like I said, up front, if you'll meditate in it day and night, you will make your way prosperous. You'll have good success. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, sit in the seat of the scoffer, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That one's like a tree planted by a river of water. See, if you want to have a flourishing life, you need time in the Word of God. And if you don't, if, you, if you're getting your sustenance, your soul sustenance from TV, from the news or whatever, not only do you know that stuff better than you know God's Word, but it's influencing you more than God's Word is. And you ought to wonder where your relationship with God actually is. Yeah, it's quiet in here. I'm just going to drink some water while I... Little Kermit the Frog thing. What's that have to do with me? You guys are no fun this morning. Okay. So, so we need to compare that to God's Word. Now, there are three different words for word in the New Testament. Three different words for the word word. It's true. I don't even know how to say that differently. Um, the word grafe... When you're reading it in the Bible, when the, Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, he said the graphe, you search the scriptures, the graphe, for in them you think you'll find life. It's referring to the Bible or the book itself. It's what God actually said. Then there's another word, the logos. Logos is the understanding of the graphe, if I could put it that way. It's the thought or expression of God on a specific matter. So if I say something, even though I'm saying something right now, you have to interpret what I mean by what I say. And so, I don't know if you know this, but in the book of John, when it talks about Jesus, it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. So, this is the Logos. What it's saying is Jesus is the Logos, Jesus is the ex perfect expression of of God. So the Pharisees and the scribes of Jesus' day, the lawyers, these people were evil people. And what's scary is they studied their Bibles of their day implicitly. They could quote them, like I told you last week, chapter and verse. Jesus comes along, who is the very expression. He is the thought of God. He is what God meant by what he said in the law. And the professionals in the law couldn't recognize the law when it was in a man in front of them. So it's not enough to have the graphe. You can memorize the graphe, but if you don't get logos, if you don't get understanding, it's going to mess you up. Then there's this third word, rhema. And that's, that's what God is saying now to you about the logos. It's, it's, it's the preceding word. It's you. So let me say it this way. If I have graphe, I have the Bible verses I'm using. I have the logos, which would be like my notes up here. It's the understanding that I'm unpacking to you. My words coming out of my mouth... That's the rhema. That's me talking to you right now. Except when Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every rhema from the mouth of God, it doesn't mean the, because humans can use rhema too. That, was, that would describe humans talking. 
it was Jesus was talking about God talking to you and that you live by, the, by an interactive conversation with God. And what I mean by that is as I'm studying the Bible, I'm talking about a living understanding that's imparted as I read the scriptures. This is why it's essential that you believe that the Holy Spirit still speaks, that he still teaches today. Like you couldn't be using a, 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 uh, this kind of Bible study method and come to the conclusion that he doesn't because it's not in the scriptures. And that's why you, it's why you, you believe that, and that you can be taught, listen, and in, in, in also believing that you can be taught by him even though you feel weak at it. I don't know how to hear God. I got, I got good news for you. He knows how to communicate to you. It isn't about, salvation isn't about me being good at something. It's about Jesus being really good at something. And Jesus has been awesome at rescuing sinners forever. And he can rescue my mind when it's out of alignment with his. And he will succeed if we approach God's word with a surrendered heart to do his will. So let me give you a practical application uh, on this particular step. Before, you, before studying, open your Bible. I, a lot of times I'll open my Bible and I'll sit before it, then I'll open it up and I've got my tools ready. I got everything I'm about to dive in. I'll just close my eyes. I say, God, I recognize this is not an ordinary book. This is inspired by you and I need your help to understand it. I'm asking you to open my understanding to comprehend this word because I recognize that I don't live by food alone, but I live by every word that comes from your mouth. You can do something that simple. Sometimes I do it in my head, sometimes I do it out loud, but I always try to acknowledge the supernatural reality of, the, of what's in front of me and asking God to awaken my soul and awaken my spirit to him. The fourth thing we need to do is we need to pray. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to teach you, teach us. And, uh, and again, it's a supernatural book, and you're going to need supernatural help to understand it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, Paul the Apostle was so strong on this. He said this, For what man knows the things of a man, except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. I want you to understand something in what it says there. God wants you to know what's available to you in the Spirit. I, I loved it when I began to understand that I could have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. I had so many people tell me, that God doesn't do that today, and yet I couldn't find one Bible verse on it. And then as I began to experience miracles and things like that, people say, God doesn't do that anymore. Go tell that guy his broken ankle's healed, because uh, he thinks so. Are you following me? And so, so when we begin to invite the Holy Spirit, just as the Holy Spirit lived in Jesus Christ, inter intertwined with Jesus Christ, it was ultimately the Holy Spirit uh, who made the word alive in Jesus. He was the connection with, that Jesus had with the Father while on this planet in the body. So Jesus is fully God, but Jesus limited himself in that season to walking in the Spirit in the same way we do to show us what we could walk in if we would have a surrendered walk like he did. You know, Jesus' foundations, when the Pharisees and the lawyers saw him as a young man, whatever he was, 12, 13, 14, it, they found him in the temple reasoning from the scriptures. They were amazed at his knowledge and understanding of the word of God. Well, where did he get it? Not from a school. He got it from a relationship with God. And I'm gonna say this is really important because uh, when, I was, when I was young in the Lord, I, I felt like the Lord, uh, made, I, had, I worked at this place called Weir's Furniture and there was a stream I would go sit at each day and I would study the Bible. And I felt like the Lord had me memorize this really, really long passage of scripture. 
And, and as I, it was interesting because as I memorized it, it's like God began to give me understanding of one simple thing. And I began to think about it because at the time, I, was, I had, I had uh, dropped out of Bible college and I was just trying to work, but I still wanted to do the things of God. I wanted to do the work of God. And I was sitting there, and as I was memorizing the scripture, the Holy Spirit began to speak to me through the passage of scripture. And it got me asking a wondering question. If no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God, then why do we send our would-be teachers and pastors and whatever, why do we send them to Bible colleges and seminaries? I'm not saying I have a problem with seminary. I would go in a heartbeat if I could. If I had the money for that, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Evangelical is a great school. I'd love to go there. But I wouldn't be going to learn. To, I wouldn't be going to, to, to hear God. I wouldn't be going for that reason. I'd be going to learn all of the background around the scriptures and the Bible. Why? Because I know that there is no man that knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Well, I don't know if I believe that. Then you don't agree with the Apostle Paul who Jesus knocked off his horse to call him into ministry. A guy who suffered twice uh, by, by stoning alone, nearly left for dead, beaten. All right, I, These people knew God in a way that I want to know God. And I stopped looking at the scriptures as a book of history. Well, that's a nice history about Paul. And I began to look at it as a book of possibility of what we can experience when we invite the Holy Spirit to help us know God and live for God. Fifth thing we need to do is we need to read. We just need to read it. This is where we simply observe the text. I open the Bible, and I just begin to read. I go, hmm, what is actually happening? What's going on in here right now? And so, and I, so I'll study it, and I'll begin to look at it. Um, and I want to say this to you. Uh, for many of you, this part here is just a hard part for you. You've tried it. I know it because it was, it was hard for me. I would read, I wouldn't understand, and therefore, because of that, I just want to quit. I don't want to do this. It's boring. I don't get it. I'm not going to keep going. And um, uh, last night, I was uh, having a conversation with my, my wife and my daughter over at Jessica's house. I was either texting them or uh, using a, a this Marco Polo app to talk to them face-to-face. -face. And, and um, Lydia said Jessica had a story, and my daughter just basically told me that when she was in her Internship. She was at, at the Gateway House of Prayer. We had something similar to what we're doing right now, like with CORE. CORE is our discipleship program we have here at Lifeway Church. It's hard, and, and, and it's easy to want to give up when you don't understand the why behind the what. So she would sit down, and she said she would read her Bible, and um, as she would read it, she just wasn't getting much out of it. She said, I don't know where it was, roughly about halfway through the in, to this internship program. I sat down to read my Bible, and suddenly it just like exploded. Like, whoa, Wow. Oh, and it just began to take on meaning and began to feed her. I don't know why it's like that, but I almost know for everyone it's always like that. So for you come talk to somebody who gets a lot out of the Bible, they're going to tell you there was that season where I got nothing out of the Bible. They may not remember it because they were young, but when you get converted when you're older like I was, I, I, it was just hard for me. And it's almost like I feel like we're getting in, in tune or something, as if God's taking his Holy Spirit tuning fork to us as we read it, and we then suddenly the lights, the lights go on. I just, boom, I just, I get it suddenly. Does that make sense? Yeah. Start the reading it. Now, I'm going to talk about these two words later, but I want to bring them up now because it's easy, it's easy to, to, to mess this up. When we begin to read, we, we, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to read into the text what you already believe, or you're going to read what it's actually saying. So the, the word for that is, the first word for, for uh, exegesis and eisegesis has nothing to do with Jesus. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, I think it's a Latin word that communicates, exegesis communicates letting the text form my conclusions. 
That's where we try to believe what we read. Versus eisegesis, where I let my prejudices determine, my prejudices, my experiences determine the meaning of the text. And we read into the text what we already believe. Using the example of things like uh, the working of the Holy Spirit today. You know, there's a mindset, there's a, there's a certain camp of people. They're considered very knowledgeable in the scriptures. You can call them fundamentalists or whatever. But they have this understanding. But one of the things that's included in their understanding of the scriptures is that the Holy Spirit doesn't do any of the miracles. He doesn't talk to people directly anymore. He only talks to them through the Bible. The problem with that is they're speaking from their experience, not from biblical text. It's not actually there in the text at all. When I've debated with them, the thing they'll say is they go to this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and it says, when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. Well, when you study the context, let me say this, when you're reading, you need to know the context. If you just read a Bible verse and don't know what it's planted in, what's around it, you can come to some very erroneous conclusions. And so they go to that verse and they say, see, that which is perfect is referring to the Bible. Well, you'd have to have somebody tell you that to get that. It's not there in the text. When that which is perfect has come, that which is in part, they're talking about the spiritual gifts, that part is in the text, will be done away with. And so they make this conclusion, that's actually talking about the second coming of Christ when you look at it in its context. When Jesus comes, we don't need spiritual gifts anymore because Jesus is here. Hello? The church, the church can defer to Jesus Christ in all his glory. Does that make sense? Well, what they're doing is they're committing eisegesis. They are reading into the text what they want it to say. They're not reading what it actually says. And then other people have had, they read it that way because they've had a bad experience with spiritual gifts. And so I don't like that stuff, so I need it to mean something other than what it says. And we do that. We get into the, I'm gonna do a teaching, uh, uh, Pastor Vern's next week. The following week, we're gonna look at covenants. The following week after that, we're gonna look at debatable things. When we get into debatable things, we're gonna really dive into that right there. So don't miss that teaching. You will love it. Um, so exegesis allows us that reading out of it allows us to agree with the Bible instead of trying to get the Bible to agree with us. The sixth thing we need to do is we need to meditate. You need to think about what's happening in the text. Ponder the details. Ask God to give you understanding. The seventh thing we need to do is we need to interpret. What is meant by what I read? What is meant by, what is meant by what I read or what I heard? And the eighth thing we need to do is we need to apply it. What should I apply to my life? What would it look like if I do this? How does it affect my relationships? Is there anything I should stop? Is there anything I should change? Is there something I should start? Okay, so that was highly technical. I wanna walk through a passage of scripture with you and show you what I mean by what I just said. Would that be helpful? He's like, can you wake up? Shake the grog off, jumping jacks. All right, stretch. All right, here we go. I wanna read a passage here out of Matthew 14. This, this passage is one of the first passages where I really began as a young believer to meditate on the Word. What happens to a lot of us when we open the Bible to read it is the words are just kind of bouncing off our page, off our head. The words on the page are bouncing off our forehead, as it were. We go over to our checkbox, and we're happy we can say, I read the Bible today. I'm not saying that's meaningless. I'm saying that that's shallow. It does have meaning. I think it's helpful to do even a little bit. But it's so much better when you're getting something out of it. So you open it up. And instead of going, read, 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 I don't get it, you begin to read it. I'll tell you what will help you read it. Read less, but read more thoroughly. Read less, read slowly and thoughtfully, and you're going to get a lot more out of it. For me, I just wanted to get through it, so I would read huge passage, you know, things of Scripture. I'm going to use Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. You're not going to see it up there, so just engage with me. Matthew 14, 22 through 33, and, 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 and here's how the passage goes. Immediately... 
Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. The first step to meditating is actually seeing what you're reading. I see Jesus. He's taking his 12 guys. Come on, guys. It's been a great day of ministry. Hey, why don't you get in the boat over here? And uh, I'll, I'll meet you over there shortly. And Jesus, hey, multitudes, we're done for the day. Come back another day. Uh, we'll, we'll be out here again. And then it goes on. But I want you to see it. Learn to see. Slow down long enough. You read fast. You read that. You don't care. You're not, you're not pulling it up in your head. I know that because I did it for a long. I still do it sometimes. I have to catch myself. When he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. How long does it take to get up a mountain? What do you see when they go up the mountain? Why is it important to consider these things? Because it takes time. There's time involved in walking with God. There's time involved in Jesus' relationship uh, with his people. And so he went up on the mountain and, and, and by himself to pray. So we know he's up there. He's been praying. So picture Jesus walking around praying. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. So I don't know, maybe people be, they tried to follow him up the mountain to pray, but after a while they said, he's not going to acknowledge us. So they kind of, it takes note to say he was alone. So maybe they had to trickle off. I don't know, that's speculative, but it makes me wonder. But by evening, he was alone there. Now, when the evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea. So it transitions us. Scene change, I see the apostles in the sea. My first picture, honestly, the first time I saw this, the boat's in the middle of the sea. I, think, I picture a dark night and a kind of a calm water. So thankfully, the Bible corrects that in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. Whoops, scene change. You know, and I, I see the, now the water's not calm. The apostles are riding the bull, you know. That was an idiom. Anyway, um, <laughs> now in the fourth watch of the night, I don't know what that means, so I have to go, oh, I look up online. When was the fourth watch of the night? I do a Google search. Fourth watch of the night is usually from 3, uh, uh, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. Check. I'm going to go with 3 a.m. So in the fourth watch, somewhere between that time, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. So I get this picture. Waves going. It's going. I see Jesus. Jesus is at a distance. He's coming. Well, I don't even know. I just see Jesus on the sea. Maybe I, have, I start with them closer. That's actually what happened in my mind when I read this. They were kind of close to each other. They saw Jesus. But then it says... And they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. So I realized at that moment, that Jesus couldn't have been close to their mind. He must have been further out. So in my mind, my meditation changes. He's no longer close. Now he's further away. And so this is going on. Jesus is walking. Jesus is walking to them on the water. What's it like to walk on water? Meditate. Is it just like no sound? Or is it more like, like puddles? I mean, did God let his foot go in like a centimeter or something just so he could get a, an effect? I don't know. <laughs> so meditation is, you don't always come to the right conclusion, but you are thinking. And so Jesus walked him on the sea, and they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. And so immediately, so Jesus, I think immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, because now I got Jesus at a distance, be of good cheer, it is I. So then it goes on. Uh, and Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Come. <laughs> and so then I, then I see Peter, he gets over, so I'm seeing this all in my head, right? See, you're enjoying this more because I'm acting it out. You can act it out in your head anytime you want when you meditate in the scriptures. When Peter come down out of the boat, so I'm picturing an experienced fisherman, you know, getting his leg over and lower me down, boys, and he gets off his boat, and he's like, oh, this is whole me. 
me up. He begins to walk. He walks out of Jesus, on his way to Jesus, right? Somewhere between that distance, the Bible tells us, and Peter came down to the boat, he walked on water to Jesus, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. Back to my dictionary. What the world does boisterous mean? Oh, okay. Kind of just rough and cut. I got it now. It was in his face. He was afraid. So now I picture fear entering his heart, right? Excitement, excitement. Wouldn't you be excited if you were walking on water? You'd be on the water, right? So, so you'd be, you're walking on the water. That was not in my notes. Anyway, uh, and you're all excited, and suddenly you get a fr- whoa. You suddenly get out of your little zone, and you see what's happening around you. And he became afraid, right? And the Bible tells us, beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. I don't know what's happening over there. Immediately, Jesus. He must have got over to Jesus at some point, or Jesus ran to him, or whatever, because Jesus probably said, okay, it's getting dangerous now. It was all fun and games until Peter started not believing. <laughs> he stretched out his hand and caught him. He said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So he pulls him up, whatever that looks like, and they're walking together. <laughs> Peter in first. It's still crazy. It's still a wild wind. And then it says that when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Jesus got in the boat and... <laughs> What a cool story. And you'll never know how great some of the stories of the Bible are unless you meditate and you begin to interpret. Now, here's the important point, because when I'm reading this, I told you to apply it. How do you apply something like that? What is something that needs to start? What is something that needs to stop? One of the things that happened to me when I read that is I began to realize something. It was the first time that I began to check my understanding of the sovereignty of God. See, some of you in here believe that because God is sovereign, he always gets what he wants. Let me say this. God always gets his will, but he does not always get what he wants. What? Yeah. Uh, If you look at Ezekiel in chapter 22, it talks about God wanting there to be no, God wanting to save the land of Israel. He was looking for an intercessor. He wanted to spare the land, but he found no one, the Bible says, and so he had to bring judgment Upon them. He didn't want that, but his will was that humans be involved in the process. So when I began to read this passage, I began to see, I began to notice something. What was challenging to me is, and let me say this how many of you believe it was God's will for Peter to walk on water? How do we know that from that passage? Because Jesus said, What? Come, and Jesus is the Logos. He is the Word of God in the flesh. We know the Word of God said to Peter, come to me on the water. So what does that mean? Does that mean God can have a will and his word for my life, and I can even begin to step out and do it by faith? And I can even be successful? But then I can begin to look at other circumstances and go, oh, how are we going to make it? I don't see how we're going to do it. And I begin to sink in the mire of my stuff. What do I learn from that? Now, don't stop there, because the good news of that is, is yes, I can. I can fail at what God sent me out to do. And I can cry out to God, and he'll rescue me in my distress. And then he'll pull me back up and say, yeah, you got some faith issues. Slap me on the butt. Throw me in the water. Uh, throw me in the water. Throw me, throw me in the water first. Baptize me. Throw me in the boat. 
And I learned something else, that when Jesus is with me in the vehicle of my life, the boat of my life, no matter what the storm's doing, he can make it calm and be still. That I can have stillness on the inside when the world's going crazy on the outside. The point of scripture study is not to have an answer for all things about God. And uh, the point of scripture study is trying, let me say this, trying to figure out God and put him in your head's like trying to stuff an elephant in a thimble, all right? He's way too big for your mind. That's not the purpose of all this. I'm gonna, there's people who believe that. I know everything there is to know about the Bible. You do, but you know nothing about God. If you know God, you know that he's just given us enough to relate, not enough to control or, all I gotta have is to begin to relate to him. And because God is mysterious, there are things that'll be left of mystery in our studies, and that should not discourage you, but rather increase your awe and your wonder of God. Let me finish by sharing with you about the supernatural side of meditation on the scriptures. Remember, rhema is what we want. Maybe what I should say is interaction or relationship is what we want. Meditation's pondering the word while talking uh, with God about what you're reading. Meditation's with God not without him. Jesus said in Mark chapter four, verse nine through 11, this is after he told them this parable and they didn't understand it. And so Jesus begins to tell them this parable in Mark chapter four. He said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. He finishes, he goes on to tell them a few more parables, but to make the point, in Mark four thirty three, he says, and with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And without a parable or a mystery, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. I want, I want you to understand something out of this. I'm talking to you, the church. Those who know Jesus, to you it's been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. And God will hide things concerning our inheritance Remember those things, those things that have been freely given to us by God, he'll hide them in plain sight and then he'll reveal them in the context of a supernatural, secret relationship going on on the inside of you that won't stay secret because it will manifest openly as you walk with God. Revelation is, is known only in relationship with God only. Would you stand to your feet? Again, revelation, this kind of experience, it's only known in relationship with God only. Listen, I want you to just take a moment right now to check your relationship with God. You know, revival, we use the expression revival. You hear people talk about revival. David, David needed revival at one point in his life. It's, it's, it's told in Psalm, maybe multiple times, but it definitely one time is recorded. And in Psalm 119, David says a prayer to God. God, revive me according to your word. My soul melts from heaviness. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. There's a revival for you, but it's gonna be found in the word. Sometimes you look for revival and, and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit waiting for you in the word of God. And you just need to go there with a simple faith 
that you have access to this throne of grace where you can find help in your time of need. Church of Jesus Christ, if you've not been in the Word, I'm gonna tell you there's a revival. You need revival, I'm sure of that. Not because you wanna be bad people, but there is a better way of living than, than sin, confess, repent, repeat. There's a better life. There's a life of freedom found in God and in His Word. If you just read the book of rules, then it's crushing you. But if you read it to meet with Jesus and get empowered, to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God praying, that thing that's active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, that awesome alignment tool that helps us know God, there's an availability waiting for you in the Word of God. I want to invite you to that. And I want to tell you that if you come to Jesus, open my understanding to comprehend the Scriptures. Meet with me here. I promise you, on the basis of the word and on the basis of experience, he will. But there's those of you here today that you don't know Jesus. You went to church maybe, or you, you've been around other Christians, or you do Bible studies, and you think those things are the way you relate to God. I totally get it. I wanna tell you that Jesus died and rose again to have a relationship with you personally. He doesn't want you to have a distance relationship. He wants you to know him personally. He doesn't want you to get your message from exclusively a pastor or what your friend's saying. He wants you to hear from him in the secret place. And if that's quiet to you, maybe you've not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus. To do that, you just need to believe that Jesus came from heaven to earth, that he died on the cross for your sins, taking your punishment upon him. And anyone believing in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's called good news because you're not paying your debt. He paid it for you. And the beautiful thing is, once someone pays your debt, you can't pay for it anymore. It's already paid for. Jesus paid it in full at the cross. Some of you need to receive that. Some of you feel the guilt of your sin. You feel the weight of the burdens of your life. God wants to rescue you from that today. If you would let him, if you'll humble yourself and see your need, not only of the rhema, but of the one who's the logos, Jesus Christ. He'll do that. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Look, if you're here today, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand if you wanna receive Jesus. And when I do, I'm just, don't be, don't be shy, be bold. All of us have been here. I'm not gonna call you up. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I just wanna pray for you. But I'm gonna invite you to do that. And I want you to psych yourself up. Man, I know I need this. I care about what other people are thinking. Don't care what other people are thinking. On the count of three, I'm gonna count to three. And when I count to three, if you, that's you and you're saying, I want that, I want you to raise your hand. Ready? two, three. You want to receive Jesus Christ right now? Raise your hand this morning. See you. Anybody else? Beautiful. Beautiful. I want you to know heaven's rejoicing for you who've raised your hand. Would you put your hands down? Church, let's pray this together. And if you raise your hand, you definitely pray this with me. Say, God, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I want to walk with you I don't wanna be religious. I wanna live in a relationship. I'm asking you to save me. Jesus, be Lord of my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with wisdom from heaven. Open my understanding to your word and help me to grow by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give God thanks for those who said yes to Jesus.